Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Good morning. Welcome to SawCast number 35. This production of SawCast is brought to you courtesy of Jocko Willing Productions and his talented staff, along with uh, Saw Chronicles. My name is John Stryker Meyer. I'll be your host today. And I'm joined by Chad, our technician. Thank you, Chad. And today, uh, for a special guest, we have Bill Werther. Bill and I served together at Fubai and later at CCN. And we want to get into a story or two with Bill. Bill, thanks for joining us today. Well, glad to be here. Indeed. And uh, <clears throat> we're going to go to uh, On the Ground. And uh, there's a little bit more of a background. This would be one of a story that has like... A story within a story, right? But it involves one of the uh, more unique, well, two unique characters aside from yourself on your team at CCN during '69, and um, I like to to start off with a little bit. In this is early March, and um, two of the people we're talking about here is uh, Ricardo Gonzalez Davis. And when I got to CCN, I thought he was like a PFC. He was young, energetic. All baby-faced. Yeah, all baby-faced. And we had a formation somewhere, and he came out in the formation. He was an E7. I'm going right. like, WTF? <laughs> this, right. And he had been in the Army so much longer than I realized, but he had great experience, and he was on Copperhead with you, Jim Lamott. And then um, the first scene that I want to talk about a little bit here is you and Jim and Ricardo had run three or four missions that were dry holes, which is in and of itself unprecedented. Yes. You get in? That doesn't, doesn't go very often. No. And it, the classic example is the one we were talking about bef- bef- earlier today where your team was in, you're on the ground for five days, you observed the enemy, do the reports, and then at the end, it's like you're ending your five days. You you went home with a successful mission without a firefight. Right. So you had a several like that. And then <clears throat> there was a – we're back at the club now. And uh, this, I want to give a little flavor of Jim Lamott here. And uh, so going to the book uh, on the ground, it says, One afternoon, a REMF, that's a rear echelon mother, uh, came into the recon bar – while Lamott, Werther, and Davis were discussing their string of dry holes, the ref came up to Davis and said, you're the one who ain't been nowhere, and you ain't done nothing. It was loud enough that everybody in the bar heard it, and the bar came to a pause. Davis stood silent. Not Lamott, a Detroit-born street fighter and an expert in the Okinawan martial arts style called Ishimru, did I say that right? I think so. Close enough for government work? <laughs> yes, I know it. <laughs> Lamont stepped in front of Davis, and he told the ref, you've got it all wrong. It's me who ain't been nowhere and ain't done nothing. You owe him an apology. 
When it was clear an apology wouldn't be forthcoming, Lamotte pushed the big mouth outside and once again quietly requested he apologize. Instead of repenting, the Remph threw what turned out to be his first and last punch. The wiry Lamotte broke the fellow's jaw and knocked out a few teeth with a roundhouse kick that sent the desk jockey sprawling. When the Remph stood up and again moved towards Lamotte, he received a broken arm and a few cracked ribs for his stupidity. Staggering to his feet, the bleeding Remph made a last slow-motion lunge at Lamotte, who, good-naturedly fellow that he was, decided to take pity on the poor bastard. Instead of annihilating him on the spot, Lamotte pulled his t-shirt up over his head and left him to stumble around like a blind drunk. The Remph was ejected from CCN the following day. Right. <laughs> so along the way, um, you get promoted off of Copperhead, and then you had to leave the team. And um, so there was a mission where Ricardo stole the 1-0 and Jim go onto a target. Right. And so the target was launched out of NKP, and they get into Laos, and <clears throat> the team got insert inserted on March the 16th. After the good insertion, they were on the ground, and Jim was the radio operator. And so he had some combo troubles. They were on the ground. They had a good, quiet night in their RON. In the morning, they established communications. Oh, no, I'm sorry. The communications drought continued. And I'm getting back to the book now. And sensing that the NVA was about to close in on it, Lamont recalled years later that Ricardo Davis came up to me trying to bring a little levity to our situation. Now, again, the team's on full alert. They can sense the enemy. And so Ricardo comes up to Jim, and this is Jim saying, he says, I'm going to take a shot at you pretty soon, just so you know what it feels like. So Lamont smiled, but had the distinct feeling he would not need Ricardo's help getting shot at, because Lamont could see on the team's tail gunner signaling urgently that NVA soldiers were close, very close. Before Lamont could finish processing On's warning signal, his hand gripping his throat, an AK-47 erupted. Three sides opened fire on RT Copperhead. Four rounds slammed into Lamont's rucksack, driving him face first into the ground destroying his main radio, the PRC-25. Lamont said later, As I was falling to the ground, I heard Davis call out, Jim! I yelled back, Wait one, Dave! I bounced up, firing on full automatic. I fired at least three magazines before I slammed the magazine in at a bad angle, causing the car 15 to jam. Then suddenly there was a complete unearthly silence. And to that soundless instant, Lamont somehow knew Davis was dead. And that's, that's just, right. That's just that scene. 
where they're on the ground, and that's just one of those moments in time that uh, somehow they that team survived. They Jim and uh, was able to get the team out, and they yeah. came back with all the indige. Everybody was wounded, but they weren't were not able to bring out Ricardo or on because both were killed in action. Right, and the the enemy activity was so severe at that point that they were lucky to get out, period. And um, with the team was, uh, they were they were all nuns. Yes. And so explain a little bit to our listening audience why the nuns were highly valued as indigenous troops by our people. The uh, nung pretty much uh, went with special forces and they were so loyal that uh, they were primarily living in uh, Cholon, down in Saigon. Right. And so that's where the uh, special forces got their uh, troops and uh, developed uh, different missions and so on. So they were so loyal that we never worried about them, you know, not right. helping us or doing anything. No friendly fire or, or enemy activity like they've had in Afghanistan, things yeah. like that. Yeah, no. So when uh, so when they came back, you were there to greet the team when they came back? Yes, I was. Because you're in, a par- part of, in the process of training up a new team. Right. So they come back, and, of course, Jim was devastated. Yeah. And uh, just a little bit of that team spirit, what did you guys do? After he came back, it wasn't like immediate tournament. He had to take care of the family for the indigenous troop as well as help Jim. What what was a little bit of that instant healing process that you all went through? Part of that was uh, I when he came back to FOB4, the, uh, the, just everybody was just so silent. Oh, yeah. And uh, myself, I ran up and... Uh, grabbed him and hugged him and walked off with him. And then uh, the following day, uh, Jim had to go down to Saigon and get debriefed. Right. And while that was happening, I came up with the idea like riding a horse. You fall off, you get back on it. And that's what, anyway, I told Jim that's what we should do. And I said, I've already got a mission cleared that we can go back in with Copperhead. And you would take over as the one zero. Yeah, because uh, I had been changed from uh, Copperhead to Moccasin prior to them going on this mission. Yeah. So when you this, get promoted because well, you've done yeah. a good job. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I, I got a hold of Jim and talked to him about going in on one more mission. And uh, I don't know if you could say I talked him into it or whatever. Well, you encourage him because that's like you're the senior man because he, he knew. He was newer on the team in terms of t- uh, service, time and country, things yeah, like that. Right. And you were, the, you were the wise old man at that point. Well, I guess I was. <laughs> but, but we uh, we picked up a, uh, a good mission. We went uh, into training for about two, three days. And yeah, then pretty we, intensive training. Yeah. Because we were up at, up at Quang Tree and I went down. We were getting yeah. ready to launch on a target separate. And right. we heard about it. Right. And it was like... Oh my God! Yeah, yeah, and then also just you know, again going back to the book a little bit because you know you 
we're really good. Werther could tell Jim's confidence was down. And you understood why Lamont might doubt himself. Because every recon man suffered through a painful self-examination when he lost a team member. Werther tactfully laid out his proposition for running another mission. You explained it. You all did the training. And um, within a few days after that extra training, you took a 10-man team and you launched out a Quang Tree. Right. You had a target. And uh, was that just like a general recon mission at that point? No, what they had, uh, our mission was to go in and see if there was a uh, bunker complex in the AO where I was. Right, okay. And so that really was our mission, was to go in and either see if the the, uh, places are occupied or, you know, had they been there and left. Sure. So that pretty much was why we went in. Yeah, and you know, and the other thing I like about this chapter because they get into some of the tactics and things, and so the team gets inserted. It's without incident. You move during the day, and then I like uh, some of your tactics here. As night approached, Cal and Sang, these are your two of your uh, eight indigenous member on the team, found a good RON rest overnight site above a trail that ran near a ridge line. This is the part I like. This is your tactics. <laughs> to be extra cautious, Werther passed it by and had the team move into a second diversionary RON. Just that last light, the team abandoned the false site and returned to its preferred RON. The team then spent a restful, uneventful night. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, we used to do that as much as we could because uh, if you had trackers, they'd be right, you know, behind you. Oh, yeah. Whereas when you do the RON in another location, then they don't know where you are. Exactly. So that's why the RON was so important. Yeah, and we used to set the RON, but I don't remember, maybe once we did it that way. But again, we may have done it as adjusting to the situation as opposed to you had an SOP on it, which is really good. (laughs) (laughs) I like it. And so um, moving ahead, had a good night. At first light, you were able to establish Camo, and um, you came across a trail that obviously had been well-traveled, a heavily traveled trail. And at some point... um, Two NVA soldiers crossed the trail in front of Lack and Sang, and they took him out with single shots. And that was the beginning of a firefight. Yes. And again, you're on high ground, having picked, selected, and right. now have a good defensive position up there. And uh, you had a defensive position. Within a few minutes, eight NVA troops were moving up the mountain towards the team. They were unaware of the team's exact location. So they were probing in hope of finding it. And so trying to keep your your spot anonymous as far as you could, you used hand grenades and M79 rounds first. Right, right. <laughs> good, good going. And <clears throat> and so now, now you're fully engaged in the firefight. Right. It's going back and forth. And how that, how that first fought, you began to get your first wave attack at that point? Yeah, they uh, <clears throat> they wanted to come up the hill where we were. 
they didn't know exactly where we were. And so that's why I went with the grenades sure. and the M79. And uh, it was a good while before they really found out where we were. So then at some point, they attacked your right flank where Jim was. Yes. And they, yes. they had been engaged for a while and back and forth. And you could hear that side of the perimeter. So you being the one zero, I love this. There's a line here. It's just so cool. It says, uh, you made your way over to the side of the team's perimeter. Quote, I was amazed but pleased to find Lamont smiling at a pile of deceased NVA who died trying to reach him and his teammate. I'll never forget that moment, Lamont said, when Bill came over to me and said, Jesus, you've been busy, real busy. (laughs) (laughs) And I didn't say it out loud, but I said to myself, this is Ricardo's revenge. Yeah. That's all I could think of at that point. We were on the high ground. We were dispersed right and left, and... uh, we were starting to shoot up a lot of people. Oh, absolutely. And this is before you get Tack Aaron. Oh, yeah. You're there by yourself. Yeah, we're there. But what was so good about it was is that we knew where we were, where we were moving, but the NVA did not. And wow. by us throwing grenades in the M79, that even made it more difficult for the NVA. Yeah. So at some point, the, as the NVA, an NVA platoon began advancing up the mountain towards you, your first A1 Sky Raider appeared. Right. And you were able to direct direct the old warplane, instantly delivered 500-pound bombs dead center on the yes. NVA, thanks to you <clears throat> directing them in. Right, right. <laughs> that could slow down in advance. Yeah, yeah, that was slowing us down. But yeah, but again, that didn't stop them. No, they, they no, they coming. they were coming up no matter what it appeared like. Whoa. And then um I'm trying to think how many how many airstrikes did you go through that or do you recall cuz you had A1s was there any other support any other gunships or We used A1s primarily because of the power and the time they could be on target. Sure. We got F4s in towards the end of it. But uh, I would have always taken an A1 over an F4. Oh, yeah. Just because of accuracy and the size of the munitions. And they had a wider variety. Yeah, sure did. And uh, that could be from miniguns, 20 Mike Mike cannons, 250, 500-pound bombs, rockets, and and napalm Yeah, crispy critter time. Yeah. And, uh, you know, later on when you were talking about it, in a typical understatement, Covey announced to Werther, the AO is too hot. We got to get your asses out of there. Werther agreed, looking at his watch, and discovered that his team had been in heavy contact for more than 20 minutes. Somehow it seemed longer. What a day we're having. We have no wounded, no dead. He crawled over to Lamont to let him in on the latest developments and founded the the Detroit Street Fighter back at the top of his old fighting form. Lamont gave him a giant bear hug and said with a big shit-eating grin, we're kicking your ass. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's not many times that uh, <laughs> I could recall being on the ground and thinking, uh, felt felt that good about it, where I yeah. can say, we're kicking their ass, but you guys had the high ground. We did. And they made the mistake to keep coming. Yeah, 
Yeah. Oh and and it was uh, evident also, <clears throat> excuse me, sure, that the uh, NVA did not ever know exactly where we were. No kidding. Because, uh, like I said, grenades and, and, and M79s, they kept us hidden, if you would, on top of the hill. Yeah. And then I think, too, even with the A1s coming in, they would knock out each wave, and nobody in the wave that was killed could go back and tell the new wave, hey, those guys are, but they're not. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're right, you're right. <laughs> and then <laughs> for a minute, we have to talk a little bit about the first hand, one of the hand grenades that Jim oh. Lamott threw. <laughs> yeah. To this I, day, uh, <laughs> Jim said, I don't think I threw one in the woods or whatever. Yeah, know. yeah. Because <laughs> during this time, again, because the grenades had worked so effectively, um, you yelled, here comes another wave attack. And the enemy was rushing the team, perhaps in a desperate effort to get close to the belt because um, that was a tactic. When they, by now, you have the A-1 Sky Raiders making their raids. And when they could hear the plane coming, the NVA, instead of turning and retreating, they would charge the team in an effort to get close to the belt of the team members. Right. And you were experiencing that with those A-1s. And you said... Let's see, throw more grenades. And then Lamont yelled, grenade, meaning he threw it. And then. <laughs> and it bounced back. <laughs> That's why I say to this day, Jim says, I don't think that happened. Yeah. <laughs> and he's just lucky that nobody was hurt with his own, own grenade. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, this firefight goes on for quite a while. And um, at some point, um, they decided to, to, you're able to get an extraction. So before the extraction comes, you make several gun runs. And because of your location, a helicopter can't land. So you got to right. be pulled out on strings. Right. And so I assume you divided the team up to be two extractions on strings. Right. So the first one goes out, but you and Jim are the second one going out. Yep. And... Again, the way you described it, you felt like you were puppets on strings. Yeah, and these were McGuire rigs now. These were not stables. Of course, yeah. Yeah. And, and explain a little bit the difference, because from the early days, we had nothing other than a Swiss seat tied into the D-ring. Then they came with the McGuire rig, which was like a, a leather parchment of some kind, thick leather. Right. You sat in and had a hand grip at the right. top that you could hold on to in the event that you passed out or you got wounded, at least your arm would be in, you would right. stay in it. Right. And this is part of the advancement on that technique of rope extractions from a hot LZ. Right. So the first helicopter gets out, and then you're in the process of being pulled out. How did that go? Yeah, uh, Jim wanted to put the last claymores down. That was our, usually our <clears throat> our technique. Is sure. Prior or during the extraction, we would leave a claymore behind. And uh, we did in this case, Jim did it, not me. I went out with the first group. Okay. Letting Jim, Jim wanted to go out. Sure. And uh, when we extracted, we were clean, went well. But for Jim's case, it didn't go as well because he put the claymores out, and when he touched them off, he the pilots thought that it was... Uh, uh, Our B-40s. Yeah, right. Whoa. So because of that, uh, he he went out with four. 
Well, so it said, and then <laughs> when he when he ignited those claymores, it shocked the hell out of the helicopter crew and caused the pilot to lurch forward, momentarily forgetting the five RT Copperhead men he had in tow. And you were watching in despair. Yeah. As they were in the jungle getting bounced off of trees. And you were just happy to see them finally come out of the jungle. But again, going back to the book, you were happy to see them come out, but that was short-lived because you realized that Lamont appeared to be unconscious. Not only that, but he was hanging by his arm from the wrist in that McGuire rig. Correct. Nothing else was securing him. No, not at all. Oh, my God. And, you know, you realize that any moment he could plunge to his death from that thing. Sure. So um, they go back to, you're able to get back to the Kwong Tree launch site. And you were able to get on the ground. And when the second helicopter came in, you know, you rushed over and were able to get to, to Lamont. And getting back to the book for a second, you know, you get to Lamont and... Werther and Jim had this little dizzy grin on his face and he goes I must have passed out Bill my back my legs they really hurt the pilot must have thought the claymores were incoming and uh, you reassured him said you're everything's okay and you lifted him to his feet and he goes and then Jim talking to you damn Bill we offed a lot of people today without a single casualty Thanks for getting me back on the horse. And you told him, Davis would have been proud of us today. Amen. Yeah. Yeah. That was quite something. Yeah, it was. <laughs> it gives me tears right now. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Because we, we heard about all that. It was just unreal. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. Um, so just for a little footnote, another little element that we had, a few days later at CCN, the command and control headquarters at uh, Da Nang, uh, a much-beloved female singer, Martha Ray, who had been made an honorary Green Beret, returned to the small bar at CCN. And she'd been there previously, Every time she'd been there, I was either at the launch site or in the, in the field. I never got a chance to meet yeah, her. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but she loved Ricardo. Oh, she did. She loved everybody. Oh, yeah. And uh, <clears throat> so Lamont had to tell her the bad news. And when he told Martha Ray that, Lamont, Lamont went outside and found her crying. So I put my arms around her and we cried over our eyes out together over Ricardo. And then a few months later, Jim went back and explained to his wife what had happened and to his father. Right. Who was a sheriff down in New Mexico. Right. And that, I just can't even imagine doing all that. And um, there was one other, many years later, you and Jim would get together and you finally came to terms with the death as well as you could over Ricardo Gonzalez Davis. But together they knew that they and the indigenous troops of R.T. Copperhead had extracted a devastating revenge on the enemy that took his life and that helped more than a little in easing their pain. Indeed. Yeah. Such a moment in time, Bill. Yeah. So where, 
So this is 1969, and you and I are together there. Um, and again, we just knew of the, of the loss of Ricardo. Where did your time in the military all begin? And how did, like, uh, when you and I were talking, yes, I forgot that you went to high school in Korea. Yeah. <laughs> so how did you, this got with your beginning, how you wind up in the Army and Special Forces, because you had some amazing time in service before you even got to SOG. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, uh, one of the interesting things is, is I got a phone call. This is probably in 65, and uh, it was my grandmother. And I, I was working, making industrial racks in a company. And so with her calling me, she said, Bill, you're going into the Army. I said, what? And so with that, she explained. She played cards once a week with her girls. Right. And so the gal that ran the Social Security office told my grandmother that I had a number and that I would be drafted within two, two oh, months. Oh, your draft number was up. Yeah. Because the draft was still in place at still that time, in 1965. Yep. And so I ended up anyway after that. I uh, went down and, and started to check on Marines, Navy, Army, and that uh, I was going to join. I wasn't going to go in as a as a uh, uh, a draftee. No, that wasn't going to happen. So, because just for the people to know, the Vietnam War was escalating, yep. and uh, we had known that if you're drafted, once you're in the Army or in the Marine Corps, you would get eight weeks of basic training, at least in the Army for sure. Eight weeks of advanced infantry training, one month leave, and you're in country yeah. without much explanation about the politics or who knows what kind of training they would get with a conventional unit. Yeah. Right. And like in my case, when I read the book, The Green Berets, I said, I want to go with these guys because yeah. I knew that I'm a city slicker. I need more than just yeah. Yeah. basic and AIT. <laughs> right. But you also had experience in the country, so you were a little bit more adept at uh, yeah. being out in the wild, whereas me is like, eh. Well, <laughs> Besides the, me going in the way I did, yeah. years later, it was 1960, mm -hmm. and uh, my family was living in Korea. My father was an engineer, and his job in Korea was to establish different uh, industry. And so that's how I got there. And uh, I left in 63, went back, went to college for two years, and then uh, I decided that probably the best thing for me was to go into the military, in which case I did. And did this is the if typical, your grandmom called you. Yeah, you know, the <laughs> typical stuff, basic training, AIT, yeah, yeah. jump school, special forces school. Well, how'd you get to the special forces option? Had you been aware of it from the book, The Green Berets, or just seen the movie, the song? Uh, the song was out by then. The song was out by then, yeah. Yeah. And, Put silver uh, wings on my son's chest. Yeah, and I was thinking originally I'd go be a ranger. Mm -hmm. And then uh, I found out that there was something better than that. So then I <laughs> applied for uh, special forces. Right. And so that's how I got in. And first assignment was the first group in Okinawa. So, and so get the time frame here. So you get in the Army, you go through basic AIT jump school training. What was your... Uh, MOS as you went through I was training. a combo man. 
Oh, all right. O five B four S. Yeah. Which is today the uh, 18, Echo. Yeah. 18 Echo. Yeah. <laughs> and so uh, you could do, hey, what kind of word speed did you have on there? Oh, I was not good. Me either. <laughs> I was not good. We're talking about Morse code here. Yeah. Indeed. Yeah. <laughs> and and the, I got passed over on the first uh, I got recycled. evaluation. Yeah. Yeah. But then I got through it at the very end. And you so. got it. Okay. So then your first assignment with your beret. Is the first special forces group in Okinawa. Yes. And so you yes. get assigned to an A team there. Yeah, 313. Wow. So thir- 313. Certainly. Oh, 13. Okay. Yeah, and that's what the Indigs <laughs> thought. 13 really? 13 is a no no with Asians. <laughs> so your team was the all Okinawan A team then? You had your SF men and then your indigenous troops? Or No, there were no, indi- indigenous, no indigenous troops at team. this okay. time. It was just, just a regular uh, A team. Under A teams, and the first real mission we got was to go into the uh, mountains in Korea, and the different—I uh, guess you would say—we were guarding the passes because they had infiltrated the uh, North, or the uh, North Koreans. North Koreans, yeah. yeah. And so we went on that, and was a blocking force between different valleys, and. Uh, we knew, I'll go back a little bit. We yeah. knew something was up because there were cases of, of high five six and grenades and claymores, and we're sitting there going, This is, you know, this is our fun ammunition, and games. This, our ammunition or enemy ammunition? Our. Wow. So they just loaded us up with all the different things we needed. And so then they put us over into Korea. Right. And uh, our team split up into two groups, and we protected the valleys, if you would. Sure. And uh, the South uh, Koreans uh, ended up killing two and uh, capturing one. And it was crazy. And they were infiltrators trying to get into the Infiltrators trying to get in. And it was kind of interesting because the one that was in our area— uh, they they came in and they did stupid things like before the uh, the war, according to the North Koreans, uh, you would get on a bus and you would pay when you got off, whereas the, these guys paid when they got on. And so they immediately notified police or, or, yeah. or Korean special forces was with us. And, yeah, because uh, cause in Korea... Because of the Korean War history of the North attacking the South without any forewarning, there was always that extra edge. Yeah. That no matter where you were, and this is now, this is 65, so that's 12 years after the armistice was signed. Yeah. And you're yep. still on guard. And yep. there, like the anticipation was the shit can hit the fan here at any minute. At any time, yeah. And you didn't know. And whenever anything popped up, other ages, there had been drama along the DMZ area there oh, yeah. anyway. Yeah, absolutely. Prior to that. So, so that was the first mission. Yeah. Then the second one is we went over to Taiwan and did training missions there. Then we came back to Okinawa and we uh, trained for a uh, what's called a snake bite. Right. And what it is is the first group sent four 12-man teams into Vietnam because uh, they just didn't have the manpower. And when we're at FOB1 
in Fubai, yeah. the, uh, the uh, problems were that the fifth group didn't have enough people, and they sure. were running back-to-back missions. Well, don't forget, too, at Fubai, we had the yellow plaques on the wall right. for every snake bite team that had been there. Right. And there are several plaques. Yeah. So we were aware of that first group lineage. Yeah, yeah. And uh, also, I just want to get back just one little backward, back to tape, but just a little bit. Your team was in Taiwan, which today, in the year 2023, is still in the news. Yeah. And there's still some training going on behind yeah. the scenes, quietly, with First Special Forces Group to help the Thai, Taiwan people in the event yeah. that the big, <clears throat> ugly bear, China, yeah. wants yeah. to come back to do them dirty. But that's that's fascinating, part of that SF history. Sure. So were you on a snake bite team that went to Nam? Yeah. Okay, when was that? Uh, I forgot that. That's yeah. why. Thanks for reminding me. Yeah. The, <laughs> the first snake bite team went down in like June or July. This is 67? 68? Six. No, 67. Okay. Yeah. And uh, they were the first group that, that went over. I was in the second group to go over. The second group of four teams. Yeah. And yeah. that would be for a six-month tour of duty? Yes. Correct. And, yeah. and you've, you found yourself at Quezon? Yeah. We, <laughs> we, we got uh, sent to uh, Da Nang. And uh, then we got sent to go up to Fubai. And while we were up there, we did a couple recon missions to bail out the guys that were stationed there. Oh, no and kidding. What yeah. we did is went out and uh, put surveillance on this one particular village. And it, they had been notified that this was an NVA meeting place. And so myself and Mac Jones uh, with uh, Starlight Scopes, overlooked this and it just more and more people gathered but uh, what we did is then notified arvin artillery that uh, this was happening right and so we backed off and and walked back to fubai but while that was At, in night yeah yeah but what happened then is we just went back and they went to the to business with the uh, artillery. So this is the at the end of '67, before you go to Quezon. Yeah, this is before. Yeah, because yeah. we when I got in country in May of '68. Yeah, we were doing local ambushes at night. Right. And the Starlight Scope, just for our listening audience, is the first night vision apparatus. Right. Which was heavy, it was long, and had a, a green images. So yeah. when you look yeah. through it, it ruined your night vision. So you had right. to have one eye for night vision. Yeah, and one eye going through the starlight. Yeah, <laughs> but you could see people. Oh yeah, you could, and, and you could delineate the action, and then you pull back, and then called in artillery. Yeah, hurting we, the commies one yeah. more time. We had when we were first at uh, Fubai, we were uh, in charge of the Cambodian battalion, and what we did is, it was a Cambodian hatchet force basically. Yeah, with, with uh, an A team, and. Uh, we also went on uh, blocking force missions for the 101st and for the uh, Marines. And uh, this is uh, by now we're talking about Tet early '68. Yes. Okay, so Tet is launched. There's yep. attacks all across the country, and your Cambodian uh, hatchet force, yeah, go out and do a blocking force in conjunction with the 101st Airborne and the Marine Corps, different operations. Right. So they would drive the enemy towards you all, 
And when they got there, you had firepower, machine guns, I assume 60 mortar meters. Sure, 60, sure. And you devastated them. <laughs> yeah. It was fun. It was interesting. Cause <laughs> it was fun. They, well, we walked into this village, and yeah. uh, we had some shooting going on. Yeah, of course. So we knew, and we were notified that there were no friendly shooting. And so then they put artillery on this village. But when we walked in, what looked like a normal village was all sandbagged and big really? Ho Chi Minh uh, uh, pictures. Yeah, pictures and flag. No kidding. Yeah, and so we rounded up. <coughs> excuse me. We sure. rounded up about, I think, six males, and then uh, they went off their way. We went back to Fubai, only to find out that we were going to Kaisan. <laughs> and so we thought, damn, you know, this is. This is tough. You're going from bad to worse. Yeah, or I mean, we came over here to run recon and do this, that, and now we're going to Quezon. So, at, and at Quezon, we had FOB three. Yes, that was SOG at the time. And in '68, we had six FOBs operational. Yeah. So one yeah. was Fubai, two was Contum. FOB three, right, was up at Quezon outside of the perimeter of the Marine Corps that was there during a historic siege that went on for 77 days. Right. And your little A-team walked right into the middle of this. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Welcome to the war, baby. Yeah. Oh, and our like. mission up in uh, up in Quezon was three of us built a uh, mortar pit for a four-deuce mortar. Right. M- motor. Yeah, easy and, for you to say. Yeah. <laughs> and so we it took us about a month to get it the way we wanted but it ended up being five foot deep of different materials. Sure. Sandbags, skid pallets, uh, just so we, we felt pretty comfortable. So you're yeah. secure and you could direct enemy, fire against the enemy. Yeah. But also, I mean, let's give us a little bit of the feeling of what it's like because there were times when they had over a thousand rounds a day yeah. would be <clears> launched <throat> by the NVA right. into Quezon. That's true. For the Marines, and they, of course, any other GI, you were just there, and you're part of that. So in between yeah. building your mortar pit and surviving, just trying to eat <laughs> during the course of a day and night, yeah, a oh, thousand yeah. rounds, you do it, ducking and dodging. That would be anything from a 122 rockets to uh, anti-personnel rockets, smaller right. RPGs that got close to the perimeter. Right. And also, didn't you have a concern about the NVA trying to tunnel underneath you had to go through yeah. concerns about that, which could be disconcerting. Yeah, they checked those out, those on the perimeter. Right, okay. And the there <clears> was <throat> also an intel group that was down in the uh, uh, bunker. ASA? Yeah. That's the Army Security Agency, right. which was linked with the NSA at that time. Right. They did outstanding work on Kama. Oh, yeah, yeah. And the uh, the good thing was is... We we had a uh, Huey helicopter in the center of the uh, compound, and really? it, it got shot out of the air and it oh. crashed there. Yeah, permanently after yeah. getting shot out of the sky. Okay, and so the intel guys uh, came and and looked over everything, and he says, "We got a problem." Not to me, but to the headquarters yeah. there. And they said, "What's up?" And they said, "Well, this Huey is nothing more than a stake." Uh, mortar stake and that we've got to move that thing so we had this old beat up beat up uh, water truck and uh, it went out threw a chain around it and moved it 
I don't know how far, but and again far for our audience, a mortar stake is yeah. So you you use that as to uh, see what distances you need to shoot. Yeah, for a better, more accurate mortar fire. Right, right. But they went out and uh, moved that truck, and <laughs> every day they go move that truck because the NVA were using that truck as a means to. Uh, know where the uh, truck is and how much mission they need, how many mortar rounds, and wow. so uh, that we thought that was very humorous to move the truck <laughs> on the NVA. So at some point, was there any other memorable moments there? Because at some point you come down to Fubo, that's where you and I met for the first right, time. Right, you, Bob Strange, Ray Frovart, yep, the troll came back, and uh, Mike Tucker. They were all up there. And they closed, uh, FOB-3 was closed in June, and uh, the commanding officer, Roy Barr, Lieutenant Colonel Roy Barr, right. left three, came down, took over at FOB-1. Right. And you all came down. And then did your snake bite team go home? Then you came back to 5th Group? No, no. We stayed six months. Uh, we finished up uh, in July mm -hmm. and then went back to Okinawa. Okay. Yeah. And then what brings you with so you returned to Vietnam? Yeah, uh, after the uh, snake bite mission, uh, I volunteered for a twelve month tour. <laughs> you didn't see enough of Kason. <laughs> no, no, and I had two buddies, Mike Riel and uh, Phil Quinn. And uh, the second night I was back in Okinawa, I'm down in the Bar District and. They kind of saddled up and said, you know, when we started talking, they said, uh, we're going to re-enlist. And I said, oh, really? And they said, yeah. And I said, well, I don't know. I'm home two days, and you're doing this. <laughs> well, now, how close were you to your enlistment getting uh, expiring? Oh, the same. Th your ETS? We three, we three were almost carbon copy, just mirror for us. Wow. Same Mike, time as, uh, go ahead. No, no, and, and well, finish your thought. I'm sorry, I interrupted too no, soon. No, I was going to say the three of us were all uh, spec fours, and uh, I said, well, let's go somewhere interesting. They said, yeah, let's go to Germany. I said, that <laughs> sounds fun, you know. And so we were going to Germany for two days, and then uh, I can't remember. Well, we never did get that settled, so the only place <laughs> that we could go was back to Vietnam, and, and you had to re-enlist to do that. Yeah. <laughs> and Mike, Mike Riel and Phil Quinn, both of them were identical to me. And uh, so that's how we got into Vietnam. They were both on snake bites. Yeah. Okay. The first one. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And Mike, just he later on had a little niche in history, too, because he ran missions with the All and Diz team with uh, Pat Eddington. Right. On, on the, the RT Habu, was it? What was his team? Our, Cobra. Uh, Cobra. Cobra, R.T. Cobra. And it was an all-in-diz team, and Mike's appearance was such that he fit right in. Yeah, yeah, as did... Uh, Pat Eddington. Pat Eddington. He was the 1-0. Yeah. And they and that team was of note because they all dressed as NVA, yeah. inserted as NVA, and they walked down the trails as yep. NVA. They knew the passwords, Yep. And they didn't have to get their pants dirty crawling around the jungle like we did. <laughs> <laughs> but that's how I got back yeah. to Vietnam. So when did you re-arrive? Uh, in October of 68. Uh, right. Yes, sir. Yeah. Sure. 
And uh, <clears throat> coming in country, the three of us, we ended up going to uh, Cameron Bay. Well, it was empty because we flew in on a C-130. Right. And and uh, we, we make a long story short, we went through the different phases at Cameron Bay, and we would just tell them and say, well, we're supposed to be here. Well, they, we don't have you listed. <laughs> and it was like lunch hour. <laughs> so they said, well, we'll check it out and come back at 1 o'clock. And so I came at 1 o'clock, and we had orders to Da Nang. And then once we <laughs> left Cameron going to Da Nang, I, I came up with the brilliant idea that they don't know we're here. They don't know what we're doing. Let's go to, to Da Nang and have a good time. A little R&R first yeah. before we go to, to get into it. Yeah. So, the, uh, you know, uh, uh, Huey came in and left, and they weren't going anywhere near there. But finally, one of the uh, Hueys said, yeah, we'll fly you down there. So we went down to Da Nang and had just a wonderful time. Yeah, and at some point you finally got to your duty station. At yeah, and, and we finally did get <laughs> to Denang, and they were going to give assignments, and so the only place we could go, uh, Billy Alexander was doing assignments. Oh, sure, the, oh, the Pentagon, yeah. And uh, the only place we could go, all three of us together, was uh, FOB one, and we were there a short period of time, and then went down. To uh, FOB four, FOB four, right? Yeah, so that's how I got there. Wow! On that assignment. Wow! So then you go through the story <clears throat> that we opened our podcast with, and then after that, um, how long were you um, on Copperhead after that? And then your story as it goes forward from there. Okay, <clears throat> I was sent to uh, Copperhead, Davis. Uh, was the one zero and Lamont was the right one one, and uh, I was put on Copperhead in October, and so uh, we trained and and uh, did three different missions, and not a, a round was fired, and everybody in the compound was you know chiding us because. Man, you guys are—you're not really out there doing anything. You're just probably laying down, and so we did three missions, Jim and I, yeah, with Ricardo, and then they put me on uh, as the one zero, with Lamont being second in, and uh, we did uh, three missions once again with uh, Jim and I, and one was a. Uh, trail watching another was uh checking out a convoy and the third one was doing a uh wire tap and so that was those three then davis came back and uh he told him sergeant major vickers that what bill needs to do is have his own team he's he's doing great so they sent me to moccasin and I was there for several months uh, until Jim and Dave went out and uh, got into that horrible fight. Right. But uh, And you ran your mission with Ricardo's Revenge, and then you came back and you stayed on Copperhead then? Uh, let's see. They, after their mission, I, I ran one more with Lamont. 
And then I, I did another one with a guy named Skybo or Skiba. And uh, at RON, they uh, came in and shot us up. And so had we they not hit you been in the RON, yeah, yeah. How but bad? When, when they attacked, they didn't attack us right in that spot. They tie, they uh, fired on us a little away from it, so they never got the uh, actual location. But wow. within the first five minutes, Skiba got shot in the shoulder. I had to give him morphine and uh, carried him out. No on, on the uh, mission. So after him, then they wanted me to go to another bunker complex uh, look. And so that... Why, uh, you're still on the ground for the same mission? Yeah. yeah. No kidding. The, uh, I was going to say, on the, uh, the mission itself, uh, Mike, I'm sorry... Mike Buchanan. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Sure. Mike went with me on another mission. And so <clears throat> with that, we got in and, and got pinned down within, I don't know, 10, 10 minutes. And uh, we were a little bit concerned because we lost two Cobra, a Cobra helicopter and, and a, a Huey, Huey And a Huey helicopter. So did you have to go in for a bright light on them? No. Well, not on them, but right. off to the side. But, you know, we just think, oh, God. Yeah. Two pilots done, we're not getting out of here. Because pilots, I would go first. Always, yeah. Always. So that was that one. And I think that was the last mission on and that And you one. also had one where you had elephants on the trail. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we did. <laughs> that was you and Jim. <laughs> Me and Lamont. <laughs> yeah, we had discovered a trail that... Uh, had what we deemed as elephant crap. Right, you come and, across Aunt Lily. <laughs> yeah, literally. <laughs> so we 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 measured it with a car fifteen, and we did several different things. But one thing I like to do is to take a uh, coke can, right, with popsicle sticks to elevate it, and uh -huh. then we put a, a a pretty good bit, maybe half a can of C four. Right. And uh, that was our bomb for the trail. <laughs> so if the Indians picked it up, if, I mean, not the Indians, but if enemy troop picked it up. Well, they, they probably had to, uh, not so much as it exploded, but when they stepped on it is when it activated. And so did you, <laughs> so did you get to have... Uh, Get to see any elephants while you're out there? No, <laughs> but the following day we're we're in the RON getting ready to go, and all all of a sudden we heard, bam! No, <laughs> yeah, we heard a bell. I think all we could say is that's got to be an elephant. <laughs> yeah. Hit the toe popper. Yeah. Oh no, the, the improved toe popper. <laughs> <laughs> and so then you had another mission where you all inserted from Thailand. Oh yeah. And then once once you're on the ground, well, you got on the ground, but your team was split. Yeah. The two choppers. You again, you had enough men on the team. Yeah. You needed two choppers because of the elevation. Right. And so we came out of NKP. Right. And flew in with what CH threes. Yes, sir. And uh, 
as we were coming in, I, I'd never been in one before, and it started a flat ride. And uh, I'm looking out, and all I can see is this plant, this copper. You're chopper. over the LZ now. No, we're not even oh, there. Okay. Yeah, we're a block away, just flat as can be, going down the road. Really? Uh, yeah. And so, uh, as you're heading towards your LZ. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Okay. Yeah, and the uh, <laughs> I don't know if it was what the term is for them with a being a. Uh, gunner or whatever it was but i finally we got in the air aero ao and the uh crew chief is saying jump jump and i look down and it's got to be at least 10 feet in the uh different grasses yeah like elephant grass yeah and so we're still going and he's yelling at us to so by now jump. you're in a hover he wants you to jump <clears throat> into elephant grass and the golden rule was don't jump until you can see terra firma. Yeah, Because exactly. otherwise, we've had cases of broken legs, broken yep. ankles, yep. of people jumping too soon. That's and right. And you and your experience, you know, uh-uh, I ain't doing it. No, I told them that. And uh, we got close close in, and uh, the next thing I know, I'm being pushed, and I go out the door. Oh, no. And Sonny is behind me. That's my interpreter. Yes. And he's uh, with me, and <laughs> I look around <laughs> at him, and Sonny's got headsets still on. <laughs> His Air Force headset, huh? Yeah, yeah. And so I said, well, hell, I'm, I got to get out of this plane. Half my team's on the ground. Yeah. And so it, it worked out fine. Wow, so you're on the ground, but how far apart were you from Jim and his, his team that got oh, inserted in the elephant grass? It was probably 100 Hundred yards, because people don't realize when you're in elephant grass, it takes a while to oh, travel yeah. through that, and yeah. you're and you're trying to be quiet, but it's impossible to be quiet in elephant grass because yeah. elephant grass is anywhere from eight to twelve feet high. Yeah, and we figured we figured we were closer to ten foot at least, but wow. then the other team with Jim had to come on come on over to me. And yeah, so that was interesting. So how'd that mission go? How many days were you on the ground? Oh. I think just overnight. That was was not a long one. And then again, you had to go out on strings. Yeah, yeah. And this time, was Jim able to stay stable on the extraction? Yeah, he did. <laughs> As opposed to coming out on one arm? Yeah. Oh, because yeah. there's a couple other guys who have gone through that, and they've had surgery. Oh, just yeah. Just recent surgery. Sure. Because follow-up. It's just such a strain. Right. On the body, I just can't imagine dangling from one arm for a helicopter flight when you're going 100 miles an hour. Yeah, yeah. Oh, my God. Of course, Jim was unconscious, so he didn't feel it right away. No, he didn't. <laughs> so, you also, um, you talked a little bit in some of your writings about uh, uh, what it was like to be on the ground. And uh, I, I, liked, I liked it because you explained that whenever you moved in the jungle— you were always moving at a snail's pace, looking and listening to the jungle sounds because from one area to another, the sounds were different. Some areas had birds and animals and others had none. I kind of figured that if it was seen, it was eaten by the locals or NVA troops who were traveling through to, Viet to Vietnam, coming down the Ho Chi Minh Trail. The jungle was hot and steamy during the day, but at night it was cool cool to cold in the mountains of Laos. 
Morning fog was very common, and the trouble at first light meant little to no air support because of the lack of visibility. And talk a little bit more about that jungle. And, you know, sometimes, even now, we talk to today's recon people. After 20 years in Afghanistan and Iraq, they're in, the, they're in the desert, the mountains. And when they tell them we would move for 10 and pause for 10 yeah. to listen, they go, what? No no comprende, senor. Yeah, yeah. And so, but why? Well, I, I think it was interesting because, like I said in, in the, that little piece I did, the— uh, the NVA lived in that environment. They, they knew everything. Our indigenous knew the environment. But uh, it was never, like, like I said, it's always damp. It's always uh, noisy at first with birds, but then it quiets down, and there's no noise whatsoever. Yeah, and when that, that happened. And that's pretty eerie, because when that happens, you tend to think, uh-oh, Maybe they got our trail or whatever, but uh, it it uh, it was a harsh environment. <laughs> it was it unforgiving. All forgiving. No, un unforgiving. Unforgiving. Yes. Sure. <laughs> and then you also in that in that little piece you had talked about how you in one target you were in, you were on the ground for three days. You went up to the west to look at the valley because you were told that there was a truck park, and again more enemy bunkers. Right. I mean, you guys are right there next to a major thoroughfare. Uh, yes, as well as the uh, the um, they had a title, been something, but they had these way stations along the Hoochie oh, yeah. Trail. Yeah, so it sounds like more than once you got close to as actually into that one. Yeah, and uh, uh, here you're on the ground and you receive small fire, and then the firefight goes back and forth and. Eventually, you formed it the next day the Air Force because you had so much enemy activity that the Air Force is going to bring in an art light. How much right. combat did you all have before, and how were you able to get out on that? Uh, they put so much heavy ordnance in on supporting us, and uh, even an arc light, like you said. But uh, it, it was usually the A1s and the Cobras that gave us so much su support. Yeah. That, that's how we got out. And again, the key part is you talking to them, directing the air assets. Yeah. And uh, and that's a critical component of the team on the ground with that support. Yeah. Because life gets uh, gets pretty pretty scary without. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and we were talking earlier. I forgot to, uh, uh, when we were coming back to your history a little bit, was how you and Jim, when you first met, you also had another interesting moment in time. Yeah. Which is this unique synergy between you two. But go ahead, right. take it for near. When you get on a copperhead, you're introduced, and, and Rick Carlo and you guys are talking about it, and then at some point, take it for near. Yeah, I was uh, on copperhead, and uh, I was in the hooch, and I had been made the 1-1. Uh, and uh, Lamont was the one too. I get that mixed up when yeah, I don't right. get Yeah, right. Yeah, he's a radio operator. <laughs> yeah, but uh, we were in the hooch talking, and and uh, I'd never seen Jim or heard of him. Yeah, but we're talking, and and Jim says, "Well, where are you from?" And I said, "Michigan." And he said, "The Upper Peninsula or the Lower?" 
and I said, the Upper Peninsula. It comes, we were 30 miles away from each other at birth. And so that was our introduction to each other, <laughs> was we were both in the Upper Peninsula. Now, what are the odds yeah. of that? And you're both born in the same hospital. Actually, no. No? No. Oh, I thought you were. Yeah, it, that's been put out, but that's... Oh, it was. That's, that's why. The, the, it's not true. That's why you're here, Bill Worth. We're right. getting down to the facts of the yeah. matter. <laughs> and you also have some interesting stories. Uh, and this is like the third or fourth animal story. But there was an RT no-name, and they were assaulted by dozens of... Given apes. <laughs> what? We're, we're sitting in the... In, in the uh, what is it infiltrated in the Monkey Mountain? Right, which is a training area. Which is a training pacified area. Yeah, yeah. And uh, we're in the club, and the next thing we know, this no-name team calls out a prairie fire. And we're going, what? And, <laughs> and so you're on a training mountain. Yeah, and we're a training on mission. Monkey Mountain. And <laughs> they, I don't recall who went down at the time, but they, they went down to talk to them. And yeah. they said, now, where are you? And they said, and they said, well, what's going on? And they said, we, we got enemy all over us. And everybody's going, enemy? Yeah, Kumbiak. Well, <laughs> what they had done is they had uh, pelted gibbon apes with rocks during the day and got one or two and ate them. And so, no. yeah. Yeah, and that was his prairie fire. He went back to the compound, and he was gone the next day. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. But uh, also, um, you also have some historic occasions in Okinawa prior to your uh, coming to Vietnam when you were uh, doing Halo. And did they have Hey-Ho back then? No. No. Okay. But you were training up, and um, so your A-team set a historic mark. This is 1965 or 66 in Okinawa. yeah. So you were training in Halo at that time. Right. And uh, talk a little bit about that historic mission. I don't want to take take away your thunder on that, but that's a unique mission from a different side. Not yeah. combat, but still very unique and part of your rich history. Right. Well, we it, actually, it wasn't our whole team. It was a portion of our team. Okay. But we had gone to uh, Pintuck DZ in Taiwan, and uh, we were going to make a halo jump. The problem was is that uh, it was too wet on the ground, and so it was not— Too wet to jump? Yeah. You too get, your, safe. get your boots muddy. Well, the thing is, is that <laughs> our LZ uh, Pintuck uh -huh. was uh, a big sugar cane field. Okay. And that it had rained recently, and then there were other problems with the uh, C-130. So the pilot comes back, and he says, you guys want to make a record? And, of course, we didn't know what he was talking about. Yeah. And he said, yeah, we can go for a height record if you want. Really? And he said, just what's going to happen is you guys go ahead and jump, and we'll uh, turn on the lights, green light, if uh, it's the maximum I can get. So he said, sure, we'll do that. So we go through all the things. We get it on a plane. We're freezing to death. 
I mean, it's, it, I don't know what below is, was, but we were freezing. Oh, yeah. And so we get going, and the pilot says, now what you're going to do is I walk back to the, the, the tail, and uh, we'll put the ramp down, and when we quit, we'll cut the engines. And so we're hanging on the sides of the uh, uh, ramp, and we got up to 37,000 feet. Wow. At what point do you put on your breathing apparatus? Oh, we're on that inside the whole time we're flying. Because okay. normally we were going to do a 25,000 jump. <sighs> Just Talk a little bit about what that's like. Because, okay, so the unit is pressurized. You don't have to worry about air or breathing. No, no. But when that tailgate goes down... Yeah. You've got to have your breathing apparatus on. Right. Along right. with whatever equipment you're using to trudge to get out the door. Yeah. But uh, that that was interesting. It took two and a half hours to assemble. We were <laughs> scattered everywhere. But what was interesting is is as I was sitting on the ramp and looking out. Yeah. You could At see 37,000 feet. You could see the curvature of the, of the uh, earth. The earth. No. And so when we got off, then it just was black, and Jesus prayed, oh, God, let me find the guys. <laughs> yeah. And so when you free fall, you go from 37,000 feet in a free fall posture. Right. When do you pull the, the string on that? On, <clears throat> excuse me, Yeah. Uh, on the, uh, uh, they had a- uh, Altimeter? Altimeter for one, but it had an automatic opener. Oh, so we could, if you went below, let's just say, three thousand whatever, it would activate the. It's because there are thing. times when people passed out yeah. or they would yeah. get lose their proper position, and right. they would get beat up in the air while they're they're doing the free fall. And if they're knocked unconscious, yeah, that apparatus would kick in, saving their lives. At least they would land as opposed to being a splatter. Right, right. Wow, but that must have been cool. Yeah, there really was. <laughs> 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 I've, I've through my days uh, I've shown people my logbook and they go, "You what? Yeah, you know I think as I'm flying to Las Vegas or whatever I look out and it, you know it's thirty seven. You know, yeah, it looks familiar. I've been yeah, here before. I've been here. And <laughs> hopefully not again. Not again. At least not without a parachute. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. So how so? Speaking of your log book, how many jumps did you log over your twenty-one years in the army? I think it was probably fifty jumps. Com combinations, sure. Civilian, you know, military and static so. line, and then free fall, just for good luck at Halo. Yeah. And yeah. Halo's high, high altitude, low opening. So you jump yeah. at high altitude, you pull your you pull your rope, your your parachute at low. And that is a major way of infiltration right. by spec ops, uh, perfected during World War II by the uh, OSS men on on the uh, on their teams, and that tradition is carried on, perfected. Right. And later, uh, even in SOG, we had uh, five halo jumps, mm -hmm. combat jumps into Laos, and uh, then there were twelve static line jumps. Majority were in Laos, but a couple were in support of conventional units that were under siege at the time. Okay. But we'll get into that another day with another person. Your story, sir, getting back to you. So at some point, as you, after SOG, after Special Forces in Okinawa, what was next? How long 
Did you march <clears throat> forward from there? I, I the second full tour, I was sent to Contum, uh, and it was put on a team that was four recon teams and a headquarters. And our thought. What year was that? Uh, out of con, out of Contum. Uh, uh, I'm trying to think of what. Probably 70, 71, at the end of 70, 71? No, it, it, they closed Contum in June or July of 69. Not so. FOB, no, not, well, they changed FOB2 to CCC. Yeah. But it stayed there. They were very operational. Tailwind yeah. went off in the right. 70. But they closed the uh, compound and they sent us off to what turned out to be FANC Training Command. Wow, what was that? That was a... Uh, the Cambodians? With Cambodians, they came over to uh, uh, Vietnam, and they were trained in, in conventional divisional forces. Right. And uh, that came after I was put on a, on a, a team that they were similar in A-teams, but not quite the same. But that... Mission was to uh, train up those Cambodes, make them infantry, make them good, and then send them back to Cambodia. Wow! So, and that training was conducted in the Contum Highlands area, or no, further it, south? No, it was. Uh, it was in. Uh, oh shoot, Cameron Bay. Okay. Just outside of Cameron Bay is right. is where that training was done. How'd that go? It went well. I mean, we, we did well with the Camboats. I know they, and what was funny is some of them that uh, I recognized were some of them up from Fubai. No. Yeah. One in particular, <clears throat> he was a, uh, a uh, Buddhist priest, spoke perfect English. And he was, I don't know what his rank was when he came over to us, but he was an interpreter at Fubai. No kidding. Yeah. What a small world, huh? Oh, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> because we, when uh, um, when uh, the premier of, Saig, of uh, Cambodia left, then you had the major incursions from the north yeah. pushing in, and that's why they were training up to have <clears throat> forces for Cambodia to defend against yeah. the invasion that was coming. Yeah. And that's what Operation Tailwind, because CIA was set up, right. and we had Tailwind in September of seventy. Yeah, that took the pressure off the CIA that was fighting the NVA that right. heading south to Cambodia. Do you remember when the first division got run out of Laos? No. Yeah. Oh, is that the Operation Lamson? Yeah, I as believe part so. of that. As part of that, no we uh, were <clears throat> at Fank Training Command, and uh, the word went out: anybody that wore a beret was to go to a, this area and mm -hmm. and. They'd be assigned to different missions within the uh, the uh, compound and the organization, which was Vietnamese. And I get up to Fubai, which is where they're going to train everybody. Yeah. And, I mean, they got guys. And by now we're talking Camp Biggle because FOB1 had been closed. Yes. Right. Yeah. And anyway, we're training Vietnamese recon. And I was there about two days, and then someone slaps me on the back in three days, and it's Scarface Phil Brown. No. Yeah. <laughs> and Phil and I 
uh, ran the recon training. And okay. So, yeah. So we were with them maybe a month. I'm not sure. Yeah. On that one. But uh, the troops that we got were great. And their leader was a uh, Vietnamese Cambo, or not Cambo, uh, oh, with the with the Arvin or with yeah, the Marines, they or? were Arvin. But the <clears throat> commander of the element to be trained was a mountain yard captain, and you know, oh, no you, kidding, you don't have a oh, mountain yard in mix. Vietnamese. Whoa! But uh, we did that mission, and then all went back to uh, the training command, and uh, I was there until I left country. And then uh, also during the time you were there. Um, the difficulties that we've had with the uh, McGuire rig, which was an improvement. Then they eventually established a stable rig, and you talked right. a little bit about the stable rig. Did you work on that? Yeah. Uh, help them to design that, or what no, was your, it was your involvement with it? It was designed down at uh, Ricondo School, and I don't remember the guy. He's an E7, E8 down right. there instructor, but he developed the Because uh, the stable, stable. rig. Yeah, and that was basically you had two straps, and your your webbing, your web gear, everything yep. you wore on your body was tied into it. So when you needed a rope extraction, all you had to do was pull the strap, two straps down, loosen yep. them up, fasten them below, and then you had a hook and you were out. Yeah, as opposed to sitting there like we did in several firefights trying to put a a, a Swiss seat on in the middle of a firefight, yeah. which is like yeah. ain't fun. <laughs> no, the stable rig was an incredible piece. Yeah. A lot of people got pulled out of the jungles on stable rigs. Absolutely. It was a lifesaver. Yeah, absolutely. In the 68, we lost several several guys. They mm-hmm. got either shot or turned upside down. Some knuckleheads, like the, like the Frenchman and myself, got turned upside down and barely hung on. And on those <laughs> on the Swiss seats. Anything else from Vietnam? Let's get on as you move forward with your life from... Uh, Post Vietnam, what was next, and how did you wrap up your last uh, last of your twenty one years of service to our country? Well, I, I sure would do it again. <laughs> and what did uh, you do? I always felt that it it really was something important that we did, and uh, they figure out how many NVA were on the Ho Chi Minh Trail, and I don't remember the actual number, but it was. When we got there in 68, we were told it was 25,000. Yeah. And then they had the indigenous people that lived in the area that were forced to work, to like basically slave labor. You had to work with them or they kill you. Yeah, right. They're, right. they're simple approach to communists. That's the way they operate. Yeah. And uh, so um, when did you get out of the Army, and what was your last assignment? <clears throat> My last assignment was the... Uh, ROTC in Mobile, Alabama. Really? Yeah. Yeah, that was that was a, a, a good assignment. Yeah. But that was the last one. So by then you're at E78? E8, and I received a uh, O3 commission. No. Yeah. Well, Wait, I, Captain Werther? Yeah, that's... I never knew it. Yeah. I should have been saluting all these years. <laughs> <laughs> I, caught, I caught a lot of hell from uh, guys like Bobrowski oh. and... You know, Pat Conley and... Oh, indeed. Uh, yeah. 
Yes, indeed. So after you get out, what year did you did you leave the army service? Uh, the let me. I actually had to look it up. It was so long ago. Yeah. What's well, okay? You got out, and then where did you go from there? Uh, after ROTC, I worked uh, for the Boy Scouts for three years. Uh huh. And uh, then I worked, after them, those three years, I went with a company, the uh, Teledyne Down. Teledyne Brown Engineering, and they made those huge nets that would go over artillery or over right. tanks. Or, mm-hmm. That's what our company did. Wow. Yeah. So you always had a need for that stuff. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to find it. I think it's... Well, it's not important. Well, anyways, we're at the, it sounds like we got to that point of our interview, sir, where is there any final thoughts or things from your time in SOG and Vietnam or the Army that we may have skipped over that would be worth mentioning right now? Well, I can tell you that uh, my wife has gotten me through thick and thin. Indeed. And that uh, <laughs> I'm very fortunate. That I have my wife, and here we are today. And Miss Michelle, Miss Michelle is the reason we're here. Indeed, and this yeah. is—you've uh, uh, had several battles with cancer along the way. Yeah, I'm, I'm still in it, but uh, this is your latest battle. But you've been ahead of it all. Yeah, I, I, I started having problems back in '05, and uh, and you and Jim also had that iron issue that was like the access oh, yeah, iron yeah. issue, which yeah. was like. How did that happen? You yeah. both had it. It's like, yeah. it had to be like AO related. That's my thought. It is. Yeah, it absolutely. Is. It, too many <laughs> things have happened. Wow. Well, anyway, sir, anything else? If not, we will get to our closing mode here and okay. uh, get you on the road. I think I'm ready. All right. Well, in that case, <clears throat> we want to thank to all the men and women in our armed services t- who have fought and bled for this country. We also thank the Border Patrol, law enforcement, first responders, EMT, corrections officers. And these days, I think the extra emphasis with our Border Patrol, both on the south border and the north border. And again, we thank Jocko Willink for sponsoring our SOGCast interviews in conjunction with uh, SOG Chronicles, paying for the production and the flight costs. And um, we could go to my website, which is SOG Chronicles. and the book that we quoted from the early part was On the Ground, my second book. And uh, please feel free to go to the website, SOG Chronicles, where our other SOG casts are posted. Again, uh, thanks to the courtesy of Jocko Willink and his staff, Echo Charles. And um, we also want to remember and salute the men and women who were not able to return from Southeast Asia. And that today, as we sit here, in February 2023, there are still 1,581 Americans listed as missing in action in Southeast Asia from the Vietnam War. And of that number, there are 50 Green Berets from Laos and Cambodia that were in the Secret War. That's the cost of the Secret War. And in addition to that, there are at least 83 aviators that we've been able to document over the years who 
went down, listed as missing in action, killed in action, supporting SOG teams on the ground, hatchet force or recon teams like we heard today with Bill and with RT Copperhead and the critical role that they played in the recon teams providing and doing, executing successful missions. Again, we thank our heroes and the men and women who served our country in years past, men like Bill Werther. We thank you. We're humbled by your experience. God bless America. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.